We've been teaching through the book of Acts, and we now turn to chapter 6. And there's this line from Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew that shouldn't ever drift too far to the background as we teach through the book of Acts. Jesus told Peter and the other disciples, and he tells us that he will, quote, build his church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Matthew chapter 16, verse 18. Thus far in the book of Acts, we've seen an array of challenges that could have prevailed against the growth of the church of Jesus Christ. There's a change of leadership after a moral failure, chapter 1. Differing languages prevent the spread of the gospel in chapter 2 and now to some extent in chapter 6 as well. Arrests and persecutions in chapters 4 and 5. The internal erosion of hypocrisy, greed, and jealousy, also in chapter 5. And yet the Lord builds his church. But with this growth come new challenges, which is what we'll see here in chapter 6. So follow along with me just the first seven verses. I'm going to read them and then we'll pray and we'll study them together in more detail. Chapter 6, verse 1 through 7. Now in these days when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists, which I'll explain later in the sermon, arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, some, or excuse me, <clears throat> whom we will appoint to this duty. Verse 4, but we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. This is God's word. Thanks be to God for it. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, as we sang moments ago, we want to give you the highest praise. You deserve it all, meaning all the good things we could say and sing from our hearts and all the good that we can do as we live for you throughout the week. Lord, I pray that you would link those two together, that our singing of praise to you on Sunday would overflow into service of you throughout the week, both in this local church that is among the people that we know and are growing to love and become in deeper relationship and community and even friends with, and those on the outside as well. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, a few of you will have heard 
me tell this story before. It's been a lot of years, and some of you might have read it more recently in the welcome book we give out when people attend or visit. But somewhere around 2012, another pastor uh, emailed me only six words. Six words of his email said, more people to love, thanks, John. And that email changed things for me, and in in many ways, I hope, still continues to change things for me. When I received it, the church I was serving at the time, so it was not here, was growing rapidly. And someone needed to evaluate the growth and the trends and create a plan to deal with all of the growth. So I drew on my former career as an engineer and opened up Microsoft Excel and and made this pretty graph or several pretty graphs and charted things and wrapped it all up into a pretty PDF and emailed it out to our staff and elders. There's this line in the movie Boss Baby How many of you have seen that? There's a lot of goofy lines in the movie Boss Baby, but there's one that Alec Baldwin's character says to the other character. He says, one great memo can change the world. I felt like this was my memo. It's going to change the world. At the time, I primarily viewed the new people as more of a problem than a blessing. And there was some truth to that, of course, that line that was... Our attendance also felt like my workload. Could I keep adding five more hours of work for every new 50 people that showed up? Trying harder wasn't going to fix the problem. Again, there's that word problem again. Then just a few minutes after I sent my email that was going to change the world, I received John's reply, more people to love. Thanks, John. That's all it said. And I remember staring at the computer screen and the contrast between my approach and John's approach was stark. John, John was ready for adventure. John was ready to see his story and, and our story as a church in light of the big story that God was working. The story of the expansion of the love of God to more and more people. He's ready for adventure and I was not. And following the sting that came from that email brought repentance in my heart. As we read through the book of the book of Acts, one of the things that Luke wants to put before us several times is growth, both the growth of spiritual maturity and the growth numerically, and and ideally these things would be linked together. But growth seems to be this thing he wants us to notice as he narrates all that Jesus continued to do in building his church. We've already seen some of these comments in passing about numerical growth in the early church. The 11 apostles became 12 again, chapter 1. The 120 disciples become 3,000 in chapter 2. And then in chapters 3 and 4, the 3,000 become 8,000 when 5 more thousand are added. And that's just the men. There's that line that says that. So just a few months after the death and resurrection of Jesus, the early church is well over 10,000 new Christians by the time we hit chapter 6. 
And speaking of chapter 6, this is the first of several summary statements that Luke makes throughout his narration of the growth of the early church. These won't be on the screen, but just listen to these six summary statements. We have the first here in chapter 6, verse 7. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. If you flip over to Acts chapter 9, verse 31, so the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. Flip over to Acts chapter 12, verse 24. We read, but, so in contrast to what's happening above it, which feels hard and difficult, but the word of God increased and multiplied. Flip over to chapter 16, verse 5. So the churches were strengthened in the faith and they increased in numbers daily. Chapter 19, verse 20. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevailed mightily. And then nine chapters go by and you come to the last two verses in the book where Paul is in house arrest. He's in jail. The summary, the kind of climactic note that Luke wants to ring across all of the book goes like this. And he, Paul, lived there two whole years at his own expense. And welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. When you press into the context of each of these, you realize the growth of the early church coexisted with the difficulties. The Pax Romana, the peace of Rome did not necessarily provide the peace that we would typically associate with the things necessary for growth, growth in the church. And there's this line in one of those verses about growth, about the church experiencing peace. But it wasn't necessarily the type of peace we would often associate with the things conducive to growth. Instead, mingled with the growth, perhaps in some cases despite the hard things, and in other times directly through the hard things, Jesus was building his church. Last year, I was talking to another pastor about church growth. The pastor leads another church not far from here that's far larger than our own church, and I was talking to him about the growth at my former church the one where I received the email from the guy named John. And at that church, during the three years I was there, we went from 700 adults to 11, or excuse me, 1,200. Seven to 1,200 over three years. We had a handful of small groups when I arrived, and when I left, there were over 40, meeting almost every night of the week throughout the city. And I don't know if I mentioned this, but I was the associate pastor of Connections, and small groups, which is not kind of a humble brag, but so much as a way to say, I'm complaining. (laughs) We launched 35 small groups, about one a month for three years. It was exhausting. And when I told my pastor friend at this other large church that story of the growth at my former church, he sort of nodded this 
knowing nod. And he said, that kind of growth will break things. <laughs> I sensed he said that from experience. He had the scars to show it. And probably so did some in his church. In the passage today, we see that the explosion of growth in the church, while wonderful and exciting, also broke things. What we see in the passage is that growth without structure can actually present challenges that could then impede the spread of the gospel. It doesn't take a large church for people to fall through the cracks. And I don't use that cliche lightly. Falling through the cracks has become a cliche that makes us callous to the reality. The actual experience of falling through the cracks at a church can leave bruises that don't heal quickly. Maybe some of you have those bruises from other churches. Maybe some of you have those bruises from here. Maybe you have them from me. The good news is that God loves his church. He loves his church enough to confront our sin and to help build structure for his church so that she would be healthy. And he does all these things so that in all these things he might be praised. He loves to build structure for his church so for the sake of the widows among us, for the sake of the poor, for the sake of the leaders so that they don't get burned out for the sake of those who attend, for the sake of the outsiders watching from a distance. As the passage opens up, we see the problems pretty quickly. Look with me again at verses 1 and 2. Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists, again I'll explain that, arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It's not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. You see the problems? I say problems, not just problem. There's more than one problem. You probably noticed this issue of the distribution of the food, but there is also the issue of how they're going to solve the first problem. Is that word again, problem. If we're to read between the lines, and I don't think this would be wrong at all, I think we could see in the background of this that I suspect that some were saying it was right for the apostles to give up preaching to wait on tables. But let me talk for a moment about the widows and the food distribution. Luke calls one of the groups the Hellenists and the other group the Hebrews. Now, because we're in church and the Bible and church sometimes use the word hell, you could read Hellenist and think, okay, that has something to do with that. It's actually just a quirk of language. It actually has nothing, Hellenist has nothing to do with hell. Hellenist is just a word to describe Greek culture and those who speak the Greek language. So in this context, it's speaking of those Jewish people who had been attending a Greek-speaking synagogue. It feels like we're bogging into the details here, kind of in the weeds. This is really important. The Hebrew group, conversely, would have been those who spoke Aramaic, and their services in the, these synagogues would have been conducted in Hebrew or Aramaic. 
They're the ones who were native, so to speak, to Jerusalem. Not these far-flung, but recently brought near Hellenists. So here's a question. Who is the majority? In the early church and in Jerusalem, what was, who was the majority? What group of Jewish people and what group of newly converted Christians made up the majority? The answer is the Hebrews. Overwhelming majority. The smaller group, the minority group, and the group who came from outside Jerusalem were the Hellenists, the Greek-speaking Christians. Now do you see the weight of the problem more clearly? The charge was that the majority culture was overlooking the minorities. And if this is mishandled, all of the growth and all of the unity could evaporate in the heat of selfish and sinful treatment of other believers. It's not a small thing. And then consider that there was a way to go about fixing the problem, which then would have created actually other problems. If the apostles waited on tables, who was going to preach and pray and lead? It's not that this passage is saying one job is important and the other job is unimportant. That is clearly not what the passage is saying. But there was a way for the apostles to go about fixing one problem that then created other problems. So let's see how they address these challenges. Look with me at verses 3, 4, 5, and 6. Therefore, brothers, the twelve say, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and I'm going to do my best with the pronunciation here, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenius, and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch. Antioch, in chapter 11 and in other chapters in the book of Acts, becomes a prominent city. It's actually the city where believers were first called Christians. Verse 6, and these they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. Although they're not called this, many consider this passage as the first instance of installing deacons in a church. The word deacon meant servant. Now the noun deacon is not used in this passage as a title, but it is used, and the verb to deacon, to serve, is used as well. I won't go into the specifics of which verses, but it's used three times although it's not necessarily as clear here in our translation. But about 30 years after this passage, the Apostle Paul, which is just a quirk of this passage, which is wonderful, is that Paul's not even a Christian yet. But 30 years after this, the Apostle Paul would write to two young pastors, one named Timothy and one named Titus, and flesh out in more detail how those churches, and I believe our churches, were to function with elders and deacons, and I believe deaconesses. So if you wonder why churches have those roles, maybe you're new to Christianity, like I've heard that word deacon, or I've heard pastor, shepherd, overseer, and the deacon, deaconess, like what do they do? Why are they there? Uh, 
We'll talk a little, not so much about elders today, but, but deacon and deaconesses, a little bit about that. It, it's, they're there because we're just trying to take the structure that's given to us in the New Testament and work it out in our own local churches. One pastor has said that deacons serve the church by being shock absorbers. Shock absorbers on a car are not necessarily the most sexy thing about a car, right? Nobody's like, ooh. Look at those shock absorbers, right? It's not, you can't even see them normally. Normally you kind of have to get underneath the car or put it on, you know, hoist it up. There is this little car dealership um, sort of across the church near my house. Pass it all the time and they have this souped up black truck right there right now. You can see those shock absorbers. Um, So that's, to me, I drive by and like, oh, that's kind of (laughs) cool. But ordinarily, shock absorbers go about their business quietly in the background bringing health and stability to the whole vehicle. Shock absorbers protect everything else about the car, including the passengers and the drivers. So how does the church in Acts 6 address the problem? They call seven men who are spiritually qualified to lead the ministry. Don't miss those qualifications. Many a church has erred in overlooking the spiritual qualifications for those in ministry. Many a church has prioritized wrongly white-collar jobs above blue-collar jobs. He's a lawyer. She's a doctor. They'll be good at this. Maybe. Maybe not. God is interested in spiritual maturity and character that's been tested. And while the list of qualifications are obvious to us, because they're so plainly stated, there's something not as obvious to us, but I think would have been very obvious to them. All of the names in the list, except one, perhaps Philip's, were Greek names. Think about that. Let it sink in. The majority of the early Christians were Hebrew speaking. An issue is raised that they are neglecting the vulnerable and weak part of their community. And they see the problem as a real problem. And then they empower six men, if not all seven, from among the minority to then lead. They give away power. These leaders... They must have been captivated by the gospel. Where we see Jesus do that very thing for us. Jesus gave up his rights and power and authority for the sake of enemies. Surely they could now do the same for brothers and sisters. And they did. And we should too. This last year we've been trying harder, I hope, to think through how to better love those among us who are not part of the majority culture. I'm thinking specifically of our immigrants and refugees here among us. Last summer, many of you have forgotten, you would have, might have seen this job description, but last summer as we were crafting the job description for the associate pastor of Connections, whom we hope to bring David and his wife Jamie here on uh, March 8th, and there'll be opportunities all week to get to meet them. Um, But as we wrote that job description, not knowing at all who David was at the time, as we wrote that description, we put a few of these lines in here. I want to read them to you. 
the connections pastor will serve as the primary shepherd to move people from visitor to engaged member at our church, helping us to become the type of community God desires local churches to be. He, that is, the associate pastor of connections, will implement strategies to integrate a growing refugee population into membership and full participation in the life of the church. That's good. I think. I think it's good. But as I read this passage here in Acts chapter 6, I long to be more explicit. Yes, to full participation in the life of the church. But let me be explicit that I'm praying for the day when the leadership of the dozen or more ministries here at our church look more diverse than they do now. That's full participation. And speaking of this, let's talk for our church a little bit longer. A couple weeks ago, I preached a sermon. I said, this is about God, God, what God's doing, who he is, and what that means. And it was just sort of this sermon, I hope, of encouragement. I want to take all that encouragement and all that's going on here in this passage and bring it into our church a little bit more. Last year, we had a beloved pastor transition to another church. And right before he told me he was going to leave... We had spent the previous six months talking as pastors and elders about our constitution and bylaws. We did that refresh, the rewrite of our constitution and bylaws for a number of reasons, but the primary reason as I saw it, and I think many others saw it, was that our current practice of deacon and deaconess, so men and women, the shock absorbers of our church, that part of our constitution and bylaws was as we were doing it here at our church, was not only out of step with our constitution and bylaws, but I think in some, not tremendous, but, but still significant ways was out of step with the Bible. Now, it's not that we were doing anything wrong, and it's certainly not that the men and women who were here functioning as deacons were doing th- things wrong. It's not like they were, you know, the, those who were doing it were bad, and so we were going to rewrite it and push them out. That's not it at all. Jay Martin comes to this building at all hours of the day and night to drain valves that I don't even know where these valves are. I don't even know what they do. But he comes here to care for our building. So the problem was not the Jay Martins of our church and the several others. The problem was that most of the ministry was not defined very well. And some of it was ill-defined. And so we spent six months rewriting those sections. The goal was to officially, officially commission men and women here at our church to lead and serving in a number of different capacities inside and outside of our church. That was the plan. And so we did it, sort of. We wrote, rewrote the Constitution and bylaws, and in April of last year, our membership affirmed it. And then we were going to spend the next nine months putting it into practice identifying and commissioning and laying hands on deacons and praying for them and launching them into real ministry that is so needed here at our church. And then Jason left. (laughs) And that's kind of overwhelmed a lot of everything. We've kept track of the visible ministry of the word, the preaching of the word, and as best as we can, the invisible ministry of prayer and knowing people and loving and caring for them. But I'll tell you this, in in August, I thought to myself, you know, if Jason was here, I think this would be the hardest fall I've ever had anyway. (laughs) 
There were five weddings to officiate, my ordination to prepare for, a shoulder surgery, and 30 new people who said, hey, I'm here, can I join a small group? And oh, by the way, the leaders for those small groups didn't exist yet. I'm not complaining, but it was just the reality. We were scrambling, and to some extent still are. And one thing I hadn't considered, but I'll just mention, um, I knew being short-staffed would be hard, but I, I don't know why I didn't think about this. I wrote a whole book on hiring pastors. And the thing I hadn't considered is that being short-staffed, not only there's a, a whammy from that, but there's a double whammy of like the work to then hire someone else which I hadn't been thinking about. So two to four hours a week, we spent time thinking and praying and reading resumes and hoping that God would send the right person. And so that was hard. And, and yet, and yet, through all of it, all of the fears that I expressed to some of you, somewhat joking and somewhat seriously, about attendance or giving and growth, they haven't happened. None of it's happened. We've never been larger as a church. Our giving is strong. New people are wrestling with the gospel for the first times in their life. And they're trying to work that out in our church and in their lives. In short, more people to love. Growth can break things. But I will tell you that my desire here this morning to serve you as a church is strong. This year, my ability to do it as well as I would like is being stretched thin. But the desire is there. And you're here too. I want to challenge you. Challenge us to keep running together. It's worth it. Let me be very practical about how you might apply this passage. What's your biggest frustration here at church? I don't mean the coffee we serve. <laughs> I mean your biggest frustration that you feel like, okay, this is a hindrance to people uh, coming alive to the gospel. I'd love for you to think about that. Write it down. Stick it on your dashboard. Put it on a mirror. Put it in your like, email, your outlook, whatever, just reminders. Spend a week, spend a month praying about it. Say, Lord, am I thinking about this problem rightly? And what might be possible solutions to it? And oh, by the way, what could I do to help solve this problem? If you're here and you don't see anything we can pr- improve, I wonder if you're actually here. I mean, you might be here, but are you really here? Remember, for them here in Acts chapter 6, for for them to see the plight of the widows, and then for them to create a solution to that problem, they had to consider the problems of the community their own problems. If you can walk through this church and see problems here at our church as problems for our leadership or problems for someone else to fix, like someone's littered on the ground, but oh, by the way, someone else will get it, then I would just say this probably isn't a church, even if you're here. I'm not talking to the newcomers that are here. I, <laughs> don't worry. If you're holding the blue bag, I'm not talking to you. But if you've been here six months, a year, I want you to join us. And serving the Lord together. At a time when culturally a growing number of people are skeptical, and perhaps we could remove the word skeptical and put the word cynical, 
about institutions, and maybe to some degree rightly so. If you're a Christian, if Jesus has changed you and adopted you into his family, then this passage here and the thrust of the New, New Testament is calling you to live sacrificially for the greatest institution in the world, the local church. It might be costly, but it will be worth it. It costs Stephen dearly. Stephen's listed first, and he's the first to die. This week, they bring him up front, they lay hands on him and pray for him. By the end of next week's passage, he's dead. But don't miss all the good that happened in the meantime. Look with me again at verse 7 as we close. And the word of God continued to increase. And the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. A lot of wonderful things are mentioned in that short verse. Lives are changed. Generations are changed. Family trees are changed. The struggles that come with more people to love doesn't actually necessarily mean they were or we are doing it wrong. The struggles of ministry and the blessings of God can coexist and often do. They did in the book of Acts and they do here at our church right now. But don't miss the line even about the priests. <laughs> Luke writes, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. The fiercest of all Enemies can be saved. And the way that Jesus builds his church is by loving outsiders until they become insiders by the power of the gospel. And if this is how Jesus builds his church, if even priests with their hard-hearted hearts can be saved, it means that all of the effort recorded in the gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, all of that ministry Uh, directed to the religious leaders, all of the ministry thus far in the book of Acts, the preaching amidst the fierce opposition, all of that ministry, all of that love, all of that friendship, it was not in vain. Jesus loves his church and he's building it now among us with more and more people to love invite you to pray and we'll invite this handsome crew that's been waiting in the back for me to finish on up. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that the weight that this passage could lay upon us does not only fall to us. We rest in the truth that you are calling us to something that you care more about than we do. We rest in your love for your people. We rest in the truth that the one who lived and died and rose and is coming again loves his church. And not just generically this broad, ambiguous, amorphous thing called the church, but down to the particular people with our particular struggles and our particular needs. You love us. And we rest in that now. In Jesus' name, amen.